My name is Keith Beavers, and the first time owning a lawn, you know, why does grass grow so fast? What's going on, wine lovers? Welcome to episode 16 of Vine Pairs Wine 101 Podcast Season 2. My name is Keith Beavers. I'm the tastings director of Vine Pair. <laughs> right? Crazy. We are going to get nice with wines from Portugal. Let's start to get a sense of this stuff because they've been hanging out on our wine shelves for a long time and they're an excellent value and they're great wines. This episode of Wine 101 is sponsored by E&J Gallo Winery. At Gallo, we exist to serve enjoyment in moments that matter. The hallmark of our company has always been an unwavering commitment to making quality wine and spirits. Whether it's getting barefoot and having a great time, making everyday sparkle with La Marca Prosecco, or continuing our legacy with Louis Martini in Napa, we want to welcome new friends to wine and share in all of life's moments. Cheers and all the best. Okay, so we're going to talk about Portugal here, wine lovers. But we're not going to talk about the wine called Port just yet. We're going to get into that in another episode coming up very soon. So when we talk about Portugal, I'm not going to get too far into the insanity of Port or Madeira. I say insanity because the history surrounding those two drinks is just like ludicrous. And I'm not going to get into it now, but because of the popularity of these these wines, these fortified wines, which we're going to talk about soon, there's all these different styles. It's it's kind of crazy. So we're going to get into that at some point. But right today, what I want to I want to get you guys nice and comfortable with the wines from Portugal. And how do I do this? I want I want to make a statement. Is that cool? <laughs> I want to make a statement. Something I've been saying about wines from Portugal for a very long time. When we had the wine shop. We bought a lot of Portuguese wine. And when I was coming up in the wine industry, learning about wine and everything, what I realized is the most affordable wines in the wine shop that have quality are wines from Portugal. And I don't know, that could be changing soon, but over the past decade or more, um, the wines of Portugal have just, they've just existed on shelves. And... Either they've been ignored or they've been um, bought, not knowing what's where the you know where the wine's from, or knowing it's from Portugal, just not knowing what's inside of it. Um, and that's not a fault of Portugal; it's a fault of just education and not really teaching people about stuff. But over the last like I don't know five years, it feels like wine, people are just getting more and more interested in wines from Portugal, and more and more people are actually traveling to Portugal, specifically Lisbon. And coming back and going, have you had the wines from Portugal? They're great. So it's exciting. I've even had people reach out to me on Instagram like, when are you going to do the Portugal episode? I'm like, what? Okay, let's do this. Portugal, the country, is that small little rectangular country on the Iberian Peninsula, basically surrounded by Spain. And it's not a big country, obviously. It's uh, about 630 miles north to south. It's about 125, give or take, east to west. But Portugal might seem small, but it is 
almighty. Throughout history, this little country that was once a county and then was part of a three counties and then it became its own kingdom and then it was ruled by the same monarch that ruled Spain for a while. But other than that, Portugal sort of developed it as a, as a civilization, as a country, as governments in isolation, even though it's surrounded by another country. And this ability for Portugal to do this, to develop in isolation, even though it's surrounded by all these powers, it was a power itself, but actually a very smart power, maybe sometimes smarter than the other powers. But when you're reading about this time, which is around the mid to late 14th century, a couple things stick out. Number one is a Spanish king dies and there was no apparent heir after his death. So there was a big conflict to figure out who was going to be the next on the throne. Portugal was involved in this. England came through, assisted the Portuguese, and helped win a very important battle, which then resulted in a marriage, a royal marriage between England and Portugal, sealing the relationship and friendship with these two countries forever, (laughs) even to today. This is what brought the popularity of the wine port to the fore of history. I'll get into it in the fortified wine episode, but it was port was considered the Englishman's wine. And then there's the relationship between Portugal and Spain. Like how did those borders not blow apart all the time? Well, it's complicated, of course. And something I read that was very interesting is that as Spain developed itself as a country, it realized that maintaining a coastline was dangerous and very expensive. So they were happy to have Portugal maintain a large coastline of the Iberian Peninsula. I'm sure it's a lot more complicated than that. That's kind of an interesting little tidbit there. This is also something interesting that I read because I was kind of obsessed with how this country is developed in isolation because it does have to do with the wine as well. But at some point when the bubonic plague was a big deal, a lot of the people in Portugal left the inland part of the country and there was an exodus to the coast. And then they wanted to live in these towns and eventually get on ships and go somewhere else because the bubonic plague was killing everybody. And this, this is interesting because this is a country that decided going east and conquering anything over there was not as important to them as getting on ships and getting out into the ocean and getting away from what was happening in Europe. And with that, that kind of began the Portuguese uh, reputation as a, a seafaring nation. And some of the big ones are they settled in Brazil, also India, which is a big deal. I mean, Christopher Columbus married into a Portuguese noble family. He married this, it's amazing, Philippa, who was a knight of a religious order. She actually had a commander. She commanded soldiers in this religious order. It was really wild. And she came from the household of Prince Henry, the navigator, who at that point had, I think, 15 or more maritime discoveries under his belt. So put that together. So so these are some of the factors, I believe, that helped this country develop in isolation, even though it's surrounded by all these powers. And this is the capper. In this little country, to this day, there are 148 identified native varieties to Portugal. And I believe about 100 of them are approved for winemaking. And it's crazy because 
in, let's say, the Douro, which we'll get to in a second. It's famous for port wine. Um, you can, if you're making wine there, you're allowed to use up to 30 of the 100 approved varieties to make wine. Now, they don't always do that, but that's just crazy, right? This can add to confusion, trying to understand wines from this region. There was also a time in this country where it was, it was the leadership was a corporate one-party rule, and this money-making leadership machine decided that cooperatives was the best way to go as far as the wine industry is concerned. And this was in the 1930s. During this time, 100 cooperatives were built in the northern part of Portugal alone in the first 20 years of this leadership. So obviously the goal here was quantity over quality. And also the government wasn't very generous when it came to funding new technology for cooperatives. So they kind of just stayed the way they were for a long time. And I, I can't do a Portugal episode and not mention that in the 1940s, towards the end of, the, of World War II, two brands of wine came out of Portugal and hit the United States and were insane successes. You had all these men coming back from World War II. They had a taste for European wine, but the Americans had a sweet tooth. So these two brands out of Portugal, Lancers and Matus, fizzy, sweet, well, basically sparkling rosé wines, and they hit the American market, and that was it. They were huge successes through the 1970s into the 1980s. I mean, I'm a Gen Xer. I'm 46 years old. I remember my parents talking all about Lancers and Matus, jokingly at times, but they drank it and they liked it. So these are all moments that are important in kind of understanding in history, like how Portugal came up, especially in wine. But the big date, the date that's important to you and I and the future of Portuguese wine is 1986. This is when Portugal entered into the European Union. I'll go into this more during the Fortified Wine episode, but Portugal has some of the oldest wine laws in the world. It was one of the first areas that had a famous wine region that needed a geographical delimitation, if you will. And in 1756, the, the prime minister at the time demarcated the vineyards surround in the Douro, where Port is famous, to make sure that everyone knew this is where this wine was coming from. So by the 1970s into the early 80s, I mean, the controlled Appalachian system of Portugal had come a long way since 1756. It was developed in a similar fashion to what the French or the Spanish would see, but in 1986, when they came into the European Union, it was absolutely organized and standardized for, I guess, compliance with the rest of Europe. Also under the EU, cooperatives and technology and machinery were updated more often. This is the moment. This is the Portugal we know today. Okay, get this. Loriero, Alvarinho, Bical. Encruzado, Arinto, Antauvage, Robigato, Codeja do Larinho, Viojinho, Guveo. These are the names that I probably butchered of the white wine varieties that are used mostly in Portugal. Now get this Toriga Nacional, Aragonesh, Tinto Roish, Trincadera, Alicante Boucher. 
these are the red varieties that are used most often in Portugal. Now, I said the word Tempranillo, then I said the word Aragonese, then I said the word Tinto Roish. All the same grape. In Alentejo, which we'll talk about, they call it Tempranillo Aragonese. In the Douro, which we'll talk about, they call Tempranillo Tinto Roish. So as you can tell, besides Tempranillo, which you've heard of, especially if you've listened to this podcast, these other varieties are native to the Iberian Peninsula and specifically to Portugal. So even though the country is planting varieties like Syrah and, and, and Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc and stuff like that, those aren't important. What's important about Portugal are the native varieties and the blends they make from these native varieties and what you can enjoy on the American market. Because the majority of the wines coming from Portugal are going to be blends of some of these varieties. And although you'll hear people in the industry, probably sommeliers or representatives of certain areas in Portugal, there's a lot of talk about the smaller regions. But there's not enough of it on the American market for everyone to enjoy. So what I'm going to do today is talk about four specific areas in Portugal that you're going to find in the American market to kind of get yourself comfortable with these wines. Because as the new regions come online, I mean, into our country, onto our market, you'll be hip to what's already on the shelves. You feel me? I'm going to talk about two regions in the north, Vino Verde and Douro, briefly on Douro. And then we're going to go south and talk about a large region called Alentejo, and then a new-ish, not really, region called Lisboa. And even though I've listed some of the most used or the most well-known varieties, red and white, in Portugal, I'm going to mention new ones as we get through these four regions because just there's so many varieties, and each region has their own sort of, I guess, specific variety that they play around with in addition to the most popular variety. And even though I'm talking only about four regions, these are four very exciting regions that make very exciting wine that we can enjoy right now. It's so cool. And one of the most, one of the most well-known but misunderstood is a region called Vino Verde in the absolute northern part of Portugal, northwest actually, in a region called, called the Minho region, which is named after a river that runs through it. And this is... This region's great. You'll see it. You'll see Vino Verde all over the American market. And if you've already had it, you're like, oh my gosh, it's a little bit fizzy. Why is this white wine a little bit fizzy and it's not a sparkling wine? Well, that's what's so great about this region is the wines coming out of Vino Verde really reflect the history of the place. Here we have the Loriero grape, which I mentioned, the Arinto grape, which I mentioned. But they also have a, a grape called Trajadora, a grape called Aveso. I know the grapes, there's a sheer amount of varieties that are used in Portugal can be really dizzying. So let's talk about the style of Vino Verde. If you imagine a walk-up apartment building or a brownstone building in a city like New York City, um, and you were to tear that down, you would have this one kind of urban plot of land. And that's how big a lot of the vineyards are in Vino Verde. Not all of them, but in 2011, over 129,000 of them were. And the tradition was to train the vines on pergolas so that the, the grape vines would go above people's heads. The idea was two things. Number one, training the vines higher reduced the risk 
of fungi infecting the vines because of it's such a rainy region. And in addition to that, people could actually grow crops, survival crops on the ground. So you would have these vines up on these pergolas and you'd have, you know, corn or cereal or whatever they would use, you know, for their daily diet would be down in, in, in the actual ground. And traditionally, they'd bottle the wine, let it go through malolactic conversion. I don't know that they knew what that was at the time. And the result was a very crispy, very refreshing, young, Vino Verde, young white wine with a little bit of fizz to it because of that conversion. These wines are so refreshing, I don't even know if I can explain how refreshing they are. They're often very affordable, like eight, nine dollars. They're mostly white, some are rose these days, and then there's a few reds out there, but they're all fizzy, they're all refreshing. It's like, let's start the evening with a vino verde and you're good to go. It's so good. Now, I will say, they're not all on that level now. This region has really been ramping up the quality. I mean, it's all quality stuff, but then ramping up the focus. There are nine subregions in vino verde alone. And people are now making either single variety wines or they're, they're focusing their blends a little bit more and, and kind of honing in in the angular side of the wine, giving it a little more structure. These are coming onto the market a little bit, little, bit, little by little. But what you're going to see mostly is good, fresh, young Vino Verde. But get ready for the other stuff because it's already coming onto the urban markets. South and east of the Minho region where Vino Verde is, is the Douro. This is the famous place for port. This is it, Douro, Porto, the Douro Valley. I'm going to talk a lot about this in the Fortified Wine episode. There, it's, it's, it's famous, it's old. This is the place that got the 1756 demarcation from the prime minister at the time. This is actually the largest mountain vineyard in the world. We'll get into it. But the thing about this area is the, the, the red wine grapes that are used for the port wine, Torriga Nacional, Tinto Ruiz, Torriga Franca, Tinta Barroca, and Tinto Cao, which means red dog, which is kind of cool. And I guess 90 plus other varieties that are approved in this area. Winemakers can use up to 30 of the 100 approved in this area, as I said before. So that's crazy. But the ones that I mentioned are the ones that are used the most. And there's others, of course, but it's just the list is so long. <laughs> but the, the red, still red wines that come out of the Douro that are not port are awesome. They're big. They're bold. They're full body. They have structure. They have deep fruit. The acidity is nice and moderate. So it's heavy, but it's not going to overwhelm your palate too much. Where it really gets you with these red wines is the tannin. These can be very tannic, but they can also be a little bit lighter. It's crazy. They're all over the place. So when you're looking at the Douro in a wine shop and you see still red wine, know that it's a blend of so many different varieties, and the winemaker is blending these varieties to make his or her statement on what kind of wine they want to show you from the Douro. But it's the majority is going to be that sort of more full-bodied red, but it can change. In the southeast of Portugal is a very large wine region called Alentejo. The majority of it is a very hot region. like It can reach up to 100 plus degrees in the summer. But there are also some cooler areas of Alentejo. And it has about eight subregions in it. It has actually doesn't about. It has eight subregions in it. 
You may not see that a lot on the American market because winemakers in those little in those subregions don't always put the subregion on the label, although that's becoming more and more popular, which we're going to see in the future. But what you're going to see from Alentejo is very affordable, blended white wine. I mean, the cooperative energy in Alentejo is, is intense. There are other winemakers around the cooperatives like everywhere else in Portugal, but the cooperatives almost what we see on the market here is mostly all from those cooperatives. But the thing is, Alentejo wasn't always really known for wine. This is where the majority of the world, the globe, gets its cork. You can look out and you see cork trees as far as the eye can see. And that's what made Alentejo Alentejo. But now there's wine there. (laughs) And they blend most of the white wine grapes I mentioned before into their white wines. Antayo Vaj, Rupiero, Arinto, Verdeo, Alvarino. They're also playing a little bit of Viognier, which this is a hit or miss. And the Reds have Tempranillo, but here they call it Aragonés, Trincadera, Alicante Boucher. Alicante Boucher is really interesting because the flesh of that grape is actually red. And they have a unique variety here called Castellau that they blend in. And you'll see red from Alentejo, but mostly you're going to see white, and they're going to be awesome, they're going to be affordable, you're going to love them. And last but certainly not least is Lisboa, over on the coast surrounding the city of Lisbon. There's a lot to say about Lisboa. There are like nine um, wine regions just in this general wine region. The thing is, what's but what we're seeing on the American market, what's very exciting about Lisboa is there are a lot of cooperatives around here. And a lot of the wine that's coming into Lisbon, into the cafes, are these light, fresh, almost like Vino Verde, but not really, sort of just young, refreshing wines that are sold in these 1.3-gallon jugs they call garafos and you can just get caress of this stuff when you're chilling in in lisbon that's what's happening right now as time moves on this area is going to get more and more focused because of the urban environment around it some of the urban environment has messed with some of these smaller regions just up and around lisbon but in the future we're going to start seeing more and more wine coming from there but right now on the american market you might see a big liter bottle of white or rosé from Lisbon. Grab it. It's fun. It's an afternoon. So this will get you started with Portugal and make you comfortable when you're in a wine shop looking at the Portuguese section, knowing that the majority of the wine's there from these four regions. So enjoy. Drink whatever's there and try to figure out what grapes are in it. Maybe they don't tell you. It's okay. Just enjoy the wines. And if you dig it, Vine Pair Keith is my Insta. Hashtag me, Wine101. Let's check it out. Vine Pair Keith is my Insta. Rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps get the word out there. And now for some totally awesome credits. Wine 101 was produced, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Keith Beavers, at the Vine Pair headquarters in New York City. I want to give a big old shout out to co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon for creating Vine Pair. And I mean, big shout out to Danielle Grinberg, the art director of Vine Pair, for creating the most awesome logo for this podcast. Also, Darby Seaside for the theme song. Listen to this. And I want to thank the entire Vine Pair staff for helping me learn something new every day. See you next week. This episode of Wine 101 is sponsored by Ian Day Gallo Winery. 
At Gallo, we exist to serve enjoyment in moments that matter. The hallmark of our company has always been an unwavering commitment to making quality wine spirits. Whether it's getting barefoot and having a great time, making everyday sparkle with LaMarca Prosecco, or continuing our legacy with Louis Martini and Napa, we want to welcome new friends to wine and share in all of life's moments. Cheers and all the best.